Right. Well, I mean, with the face masks on, yes. Rodden, you can't really. Well, it's gone when we got him back to lockdown. Going on, but the Bunsen burner's going nicely. Well, yes, we're in the lab, and the lab coats are officially on. I've got the little, little buckles done up and the, oh, the, the, the sleeves and, and buttons. What will you be working on today, mate? Is there a little bit of chemical... Enhancement? Yes. Well, there's always enhancement, Tom. Mm-hmm. There's always a need for enhancement. I'm, I'm working on something to, mo- uh, to motivate me. Mostly. I think enhancement, PDs, this must be in your genetics. From, yeah, from yeah, years yeah. and years of uh, evolution. It's, evolution. Just, it's in Hereditary. your DNA. Hereditary. Here we are for another episode of Under the Bar podcast. Yes, just let me take my mask off. Yes, I'm taking my mask off. Look, we're probably I'm just hang it off one ear like that. Yeah, nice. Is that professional? That's probably good enough. Mm. Like a virtue signal will get you a long way these days. Mm. Like you can just you don't really have to wipe the bench down no. or the dumbbell. But if you mm. take out a little sanitizing thingy and mm. you give it just a little dusting, I, hey, just, I, I wiped just, it down. I Everyone's take, happy with that. I take one out and just <laughs> blow my nose and put it in the bin. They go, oh yeah, <laughs> oh, yeah. very good. Yeah, COVID safe, COVID, safe, uh, COVID safe. Sneeze say. there. Mm-hmm. Mm, very good. Professional. Well, this is exciting, Rawdon. Um, Menno Henselman. So, well, we've um, had a we've had a few biggies, but they've been uh, big locals. But we went uh, cold to friend, phone to friend for this one. Menno Henselmans, he really doesn't need that much of an introduction. Mm-hmm. Um, do we do it, or do we just skip past it and just go so straight to the interview? He's Menno. He's Menno. Mm. But no, seriously though, deadly um, serial. Right, this is exciting, Broden, because mm. it's a slightly different thing than what we usually do with Menno. We're looking at more of a, the psychological aspects mm. of compliance and success with body composition yeah. but from the perspective of a coach so we're looking at i guess the the psychological aspects that go into motivating mm. a client for success mm. and as a coach how to recognize that and uh, instill it within the way you run your business goal setting motivations growth mindset or yeah the, we, we dotted i's cross t's there's quite a bit of meat in this one mm. it's uh Double the meat. Oh, yeah. This one. Yeah. <laughs> Double. Double ender. That's what we did. With yeah, that. absolutely. Well, we started off talking about the, the Pygmalion effect, mm. and this will be explained more with Menno, but basically they did some studies where they gave, I think they told teachers mm. that the class that they were teaching was a highly gifted, high-level class of students and the teacher went in with that expectation and they were average or poor-level students, but their results reflected those of high-level students after mm. the end of the teaching period based off the belief system that the teacher had around what those students mm. were capable All star of. star pupils. Yes. So that's the, they've done some studies around that. And, mm. and what we sort of talk about with Menno is as coaches, when someone sits down in front of us, how much belief we have in them and instill in the process and how that can impact, influence their behaviors. Yeah. And interestingly, we can uh, subliminal. Mm. You know, we can have, yeah, I think you're really going to progress well. And then the fingers are crossed like this. You turn your back and go, yeah, right. You know, and there's a mirror. They see you doing the fingers crossed, going, mouthing you're right. But, yeah, very, very fascinating. And mm. um, he really unpacked a lot of these uh, points. Because as Menno does, he provides all the, the facts and figures. It was um, it was quite uh, eye-opening. Yes, absolutely. There's a lot of, uh, oh, yeah, I've noticed that. Is that So that's what's happening. That's... Uh, 
Yeah, and a couple of uh, and and for our listeners that are coaches, you, it would certainly resonate a lot with what you've done and are doing, and perhaps influence what you do moving forward. Mm. And as you said, there's uh, there's research and data behind all of these points. So we look mm. at motivation and all of the factors that go into uh, fostering an mm. environment of motivation for your client, and they're all based on some sort of research and data, mm. um, which is fantastic. So pen and paper could mm. be kept handy mm-hmm. if you were that way inclined. Mm-hmm. And not like us, not that you remember it. No, no, no. One year out the other. Yeah, yeah. uh, Well, we rely on the menos of the world for the to remember the hard stuff. We've just got to grasp some concepts. concepts, Yeah, yeah, that's it. That's it. All right. right, Well, let's go to Menno Henselman's. So, Menno, you've uh, you've written a book. You have a book. It's sort of there, ready, close to ready to go. Or, well, not uh, ready to go. Uh, I probably I, I could finish it up now in may, maybe a week, right? But I have a lot of other projects going on, accrediting my course, yeah. Um, some uh, business restructurements. So when I get to it, uh, a new PT course launch mm. is going to be uh, happening soon. So I think after a month or two, I I will have time for it. Then I can finish it up relatively quickly. Um, yeah, I'm already really happy with uh, the contents. Well, we, so, we'll give yeah. a, a slight uh, plug here, uh, uh, upcoming. You know, your and, yours and my world sound pretty similar. Like I, I've got to go to the groceries, do some uh, shopping, got to get some meat for tonight. You know, I've got to walk <laughs> Jada. Uh, I mean, we've both got a list of things to do. I can understand why the book's taken a while. Yeah. I, I get uh, a lot of things on my plate as well from, from this part of the world. Yeah, that's uh, that's how it goes. Yeah, yeah. I, I really look yeah. forward to your uh, memoirs, Roy. Oh yes, yeah, yeah. yes. Great reading, scintillating. Well, man, we've got this sort of list of topics mm. that you sent through, so we might just start working our way down a wading few of these, through them. wading through them. And the first little mm-hmm. section is on the uh, the psychology of coaching, and I'm very interested in this first point. Beware the Pygmalion effect. Mm. Now, from what I understand, the Pygmalion mm-hmm. effect is—is um, is it like a psychological phenomenon? There's, it's been studied, but yeah. there, there's nothing hard behind it as yet, or is there? It's been studied, yeah. It's, uh, I mean, psychological science. It's hard empirical data. Yeah. But uh, you know, it's not physical science. So basically, what it means yeah. is that the Pygmalion effect, very simply put, is that people, in a way, become as you treat them, because the way you treat them says how you portray them, and that becomes part of their self-concept. And other people may also start treating them that way. So in general, with a lot of things, a lot of psychological research indicates that people don't really have a very clear idea of how they are, and they use cues from the environment and simply how they behave to form a self-concept. And of course, how people other, other people see you is a big part of that concept. So. The classical studies from the Pygmalion effect uh, are from uh, students and especially children, where if the teacher uh, portrays or treats a certain child as being, for example, a poor student or a troublemaker, Mm -hmm. then they will actually start becoming that way more. Whereas if a teacher says, well, this child is is the the prodigal son, my favorite student, Mm -hmm. always behaves, then they're more likely to indeed behave. And I think is basically true everywhere in life, and especially with the coach-client relationship, in that if you treat your clients as very weak, I think this is a mistake many coaches make, especially ones that have experience with non-adhering clients, 
if you then go into uh, a coach-client relationship with the idea that the client is indeed going to have very great difficulty at hearing, and you're already going to take some steps back and say, yeah, let's not get into this. This part is complicated. You know, let's start with the basics. Um, and if the client says, well, let's do six workouts a week, and you say, well, you know, maybe let's start with three yeah. because, uh, you know, you have a busy schedule. If you start that way, then the client also thinks, okay, yeah, you know, I have difficulty at hearing. The coach already knows it. And it, it eats their self-esteem, basically. Tell me, Menno, is it um, is it something that because I've I and Tom we've discussed this and had athletes that we've coached or, or Gen Pop clientele that we've coached previously uh, without much success body composition wise, and then they move on to another mm -hmm. coach, and then you know neck minute they, they they're in shape and and it's like what you know what that I mean I don't reach out and say hey what did you actually do with uh, so and so but. Is it something that even on a, a subconscious level, like say I'm thinking, well, yeah, here, here's your plan, you know, yeah, and then deep down, gosh, there's no way they're going to follow this or mm. I don't think they're going to succeed. And that just exudes a uh, on a subliminal, like do you think it would have that effect as well? Like it, it because I, I've got no other explanation, you know, unless, I don't know, there's energy balance differs from coach to coach or whatever but i see it time and time again with one athlete working with a coach you know gets x result and then they go to another coach and whether they are doing more uh vocal encouragement like along the lines of this this pygmalion effect and telling them that they can succeed or again just on a subconscious level you just really believe in them and that's what you should i'm not saying that i don't believe in the the clientele i coach but can it can it be um, underlying like that as well? Just the fact that, that deep down it's it's you don't think they're able, or is it more it has to be verbalized and um, for the for the client to pick up on it? It can definitely be subliminal. Um, I mean, a lot of factors go into the difference between different coaches. Not just the Pygmalion effect, but also just even tone of voice, uh, perceived authority of the coach, and just of course the difference in methodology employed by the coaches. Mm. But we know, we know from psychological research that a lot of things happen subliminally, and that's also why uh, most medical trials are double-blinded. So, mm. yes, you even the person administering a drug, and this is this is well well established that if someone administers a drug, which is basically it's a non-verbal interaction, it's very brief. You know, it's uh, someone gives inject something in you. Mm. Uh, if they know that it's placebo it's less effective on average. Yeah. Mm. So maybe just the, the body language or, you know, we, we pick up on a, on a ton of things uh, there, you know, there are some of these sayings like 80% of what we pick up is, is not even verbal. Wow. Um, and, you know, it's hard to put a number on it, but it is definitely true that we, we pick up on a lot of things and we also communicate a lot more than, than we think we do just because of our facial expressions, posture, the mm. way we word things. You know, so uh, I'd say, yeah, definitely it can be subliminal. Because I think we might be sort of filtering our environment and there's only a certain portion of what we see in front of us that actually registers with the, the conscious mind, but we might still be mm. unknowingly picking up on all these things that you're talking about, Menno, the body language or other things mm. that are leading us to this certain point. But there must be a belief in there, some sort of subconscious belief underpinning it all somewhere. Mm. 
Yeah, and I think it's also good as a coach to take on the burden of responsibility for the client's adherence. So don't think Absolutely. of client adherence as something that's the client's uh, choice. You know, it's not like you you're just there to give the information, and if the client has trouble following it, then it's on them. That's a very bad mindset. I think in general, um, I've had some clients too that were uh, had a basically had that mindset, as in it was all on them, and. Uh, they email at a time like I say, well, I want to quit. And I ask, okay, uh, why? And they say, well, I have trouble following the program. And then I respond, well, okay, that's exactly when you need the coaching. Because mm. up until the point that everything I tell you is basically going to be followed to the letter and everything works as planned and progress is great, then you don't really need coaching. You know, mm. you, you have some of the checkups, but you could probably reduce it to maybe uh, a monthly checkup or something like that um, because th there is some fine tuning of course with the macros and all those things but that's I'd say a minority of, of the actual coaching process mm. so we have to uh, as coaches come to some sort of place where as soon as we have that first interaction with whatever client it is that's in front of us or across the screen from us or you know we get the first email to, to set up some sort of psychological space within ourselves that sets the foundation for the relationship and that it's you're, you're going in with the belief and the assumption that if this working relationship goes forward, that it's going to be successful. successful. Yeah. And at least that you're, you're going to try to make it work because I think it's hard to, you know, you, you kind of have the mindset like this is going to work, but for, for some coaches that, that level of self-deceit, you know, doesn't, doesn't work anymore. Uh, because you know some clients really are going to have great difficulty at hearing and mm. there are some factors beyond your control but i think if you have the mindset that client adherence is part of your job that goes a very long way yeah okay yeah that's good, good. Yeah. sound sage advice there so if we look at um i guess motivation more broadly now meno and how we sort of go about assessing where a, a client is at with their motivation versus enthusiasm or mm. inspiration you might say in, in, in terms mm. of the desire to achieve the result and adhere to the plans internally so how do we go about figuring out where someone's at with their level of motivation yeah it's, it's generally good to categorize whether someone's motivation is more extrinsic or intrinsic mm -hmm. and that's the the biggest difference that we uh, we generally see in research motivation type extrinsic motivation is more goal oriented it's you do something purely with an ulterior motive so you maybe if you don't like your job you go to your job purely because you get paid like there was nothing that would motivate you to go to your job if you didn't get paid for it yeah and uh, intrinsic motivation is something that you do and you you may not even know why or you can try to rationalize it but really there's just some, some something in you that drives you to for example go to the gym or play the piano, or dance, or sing, or whatever you enjoy doing. Basically, your, your, your real hobbies that you do without anyone having told you, those are things that are very strongly intrinsically motivated. And ideally, you want to cultivate that intrinsic motivation the most, because extrinsic motivation is, is very, very shallow compared to intrinsic motivation. Mm -hmm. Okay, so intrinsic, the uh, individual athlete presents as clearly wanting to do a physique competition or change body composition for a gem pop 
client um, do you then have to pry deeper to to try and find the what is intrinsically driving it or is it simply great you have what you need it's you're deeply motivated awesome let's roll with it or do you try and pry a little deeper so you know actually what's uh, driving it because I had this conversation with um, someone that was doing a documentary about uh, bodybuilding and well image in Australia and she sort of asked why you know people do decide to do competitions and or change body comp, put muscle on or whatever. And, and she sort of put me on the spot and I was like, eh, hmm, uh, I don't know, I've always done it. I was bullied at school. Maybe there's some driving there to, and I associated with a lot of football players and big boys at school. And, um, you know, always felt that I was, wasn't as good as them potentially. Uh, so there are a few of the reasons, but I, I can't really pinpoint why I actually do train and, and you know, try and, build, maintain muscle and that type of stuff. Like it is important to know the, the actual underlying why or is it just simply accepting that it's intrinsic enough? I think especially for intrinsic motivation, uh, you don't really have to dig deeper. In fact, it can work adversely because as you say, sometimes you have intrinsic motivation but you really can't articulate it. Um, mm. I also don't really uh, know why I lift. In fact, uh, since I, I think I'm pretty much at my uh, maximum muscular potential, um, well, naturally. it's quite hard to rationalize. Uh, yeah, <laughs> so I think it's it's you know why why you go to the gym? I just know that my life is better when I do than when I don't. Yeah, same. Yeah. So right. that that's that's pretty much all I know, and that's all I need to know. Uh, I have the drive. I know my life is better for it, and you know you can articulate things like health, and you look better. Um, and you can eat more and you sleep better, you're more productive, all those things. But those are not really what I think of when I go to the gym. You know, I'm not doing a workout, I'm not squatting and thinking, oh, yeah, I can have half a, half a piece more sushi if I finish this set, you know? Well, so, you, you're probably like the rest of us and thinking you're going to get more chicks if you're looking jacked. Is, is that maybe there a little intrinsically? Yeah, even that. <laughs> I don't really, I don't really believe <laughs> I don't think it's, uh, it's that important, actually. For uh, you're saying girls don't like know. jack guys? Come on, They're crazy. They do. There's a lot of research that they do, uh, but ah. they actually prefer. <laughs> nice. Um, yeah, there is a lot of research on this. Yeah, they Athletic prefer physics. someone that looks Athletic. strong. Yeah. Ah, looks strong. Yeah. Okay. It doesn't really even matter. Um, I mean, there are a lot of things on aesthetics that um, probably on average would have an effect, but the biggest effect by far is just looking strong. And that can achieve, be achieved in a variety of ways. Some guys, for example, naturally have broad shoulders and they just look kind of bulky, uh, square jaw and everything. And then mm. they may already look strong. And then if they put on 20 kilos more muscle, that really doesn't change that much. Mm. Plus, in the eyes of like an untrained 19-year-old uh, girl, there are very different levels of <laughs> muscularity that may just all fall under the umbrella of jacked. Yeah, you know, mm, I, exactly. Um, uh, I knew this girl actually in Mexico and she would look at a guy like a soccer player or something and be like, oh, that guy is jet. And I'd be like, what? <laughs> and then the other time she would also look at like a, a real bodybuilder that came into the gym and she's like, that guy is jet. And I'd be <laughs> like, well, there's probably a 60 pound difference at least between that guy and the soccer player you pointed out recently. And she's just like, yeah, they're both fit. 
Uh, no, same same category. Soccer mm. player, pro bodybuilder. <laughs> yeah. Yes, and nineteen-year-old girls, huh? That's that. That's her perspective, and and we then go through a, a Schoenfeld study or something to see uh-huh. if we can get an extra two hundred grams of muscle yes. mass over the next decade or so of our training, <laughs> like she cares. Yeah. Well, yeah. they're meno gains. Two hundred grams over a decade—that'd be pretty good for you, mate. Yeah. I'll take it and run with it because we're going to train anyway because it's intrinsic. Mm-hmm. intrinsic 200 grams, that's a bonus, Tom. Yeah. And so this is an interesting thing, man. So like all the people that would come to work with Rawdon, for instance, if you looked at their hierarchy of values and how they already operate their lives, it's clear that strength training and nutrition, that kind of stuff is intrinsic to them. So it's mm. we'll get to what we do with them deeper mm-hmm. in the plan where it gets very hard. But uh, for myself, I probably sit in front of more people who, if you looked at their hierarchy of values, it would be work, family and various other mm-hmm. things. So they're sort of, you know, outsourcing this part of their lifestyle because they need help because it's not an intrinsic thing for them to do to go to the mm-hmm. gym and wh- whatever they're doing. So how do we work with that person who's the, the motivation required is extrinsic? How do we start um, making this lifestyle more intrinsic to them you need to get in shape otherwise you'll have a heart attack okay doctor extrinsic yes yeah so those kind of things um have very limited use like you know you have these um i think my uh my fiance's uncle it was was told after 50 years of smoking um he went to the doctor doctor said if you're gonna continue like this you're dead in two weeks and those kind of moments, you know, th- those those can hit home. Uh, and he did. He quit smoking like that and hasn't smoked ever since. But with coaching and the like, you know, uh, you know, you could try telling your client like, if you, if you don't step it up in the next two weeks, you're going to be scrawny for life. But uh, <laughs> maybe maybe not quite as effective. So I think more uh, more scientifically speaking, there are three ways that we can cultivate intrinsic motivation. And there are, there's lots of uh, research on these these three pillars, essentially, of intrinsic motivation. And those are competence, autonomy, and relatedness. And you can cultivate all three, mm-hmm. but it's a bit of a different process. So competence is the thing you can cultivate the most because it basically just means being good at something. And if you, you know, if someone tries to go to the gym, they don't get any results, uh, they're going to quit pretty quickly. You know, like how many people do you know that play the guitar and just really suck at it? You know? Oh, yeah. And been they've, been, they've been at it for 30 years and they love playing, but they really suck at it. Uh, <laughs> yeah. You don't have many of those people, you know? Like People like playing the guitar because they're good at it, typically. Mm-hmm. Or they do it so much that they become good, at least there's, there's improvement. Uh, and in general, people self-select very strongly for things that they are good at. Yeah. And certain things are, of course, more genetically uh, influenced than others. Strength training is actually something that's uh, compared to playing the guitar, is uh, very much under your own control. You can have mm. a huge difference in body composition and strength for untrained versus non-trained, uh, or untrained versus well-trained individual. If you compare that, for example, to singers, where some people can naturally just sing really well, mm. and there's definitely skill involved, but some people typically don't have it. Mm. So, with uh, competence is something that basically teaching people that what they do actually works get them results and results are probably i'd say also the if i look at my clients adherence results is the number one factor by far mm. that determines whether they're going to stick with me as a coach and uh, the competence there goes both ways they competence in their own ability to actually 
do what's required, but also competence in, in ourselves as coaches as well? Yeah, too. That, um, well, that, that was going to increase the intrinsic motivation as a coach. Um, and I think that that's also definitely a factor in that if you get poor results with your clients, you're not going to be very motivated to be a coach or stay a coach. Mm. Um, you're going to question yourself and uh, you may be motivated like, or you may be tempted to think like, you know, I just have crap clients. I don't like these people. I don't like this job. So, yeah, I'd say there's uh, definitely a factor for the coach as well. Uh, more generally speaking, people are more intrinsically motivated for things they get competent in or get good at. Yeah. And I guess the training side of things is that's what we're there to do. We're there to instruct and, and form technique and movement patterns and yeah. you know, explain methods of training and take them through that process. But then I guess the nutrition and the diet side, there has to be, they'll have to learn how to, you know, it's easy enough to bake chicken breasts every day, but there's a certain skill to bake them in a nice way that they're cooked at the, <laughs> in the you know, they're tender and they're oh, moist yes. and you enjoy eating moist. more. Like the, the better you are mm-hmm. at cooking the foods that you're going to be eating with your plan and your, your system of bulk cooking or packing the containers and washing the containers and, yeah. or, you know, getting a, a bit of skill and system around all that stuff takes a bit of time to develop. But once you do develop it, it makes life much more easy. And by the time you're there, it's become more intrinsic. Definitely there's chicken and then there's chick. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So the other two factors mm. um, to, to go on the uh, the pillars of intrinsic motivation yes. are autonomy and relatedness. So autonomy is something that as a coach is a little bit dubious to, to cultivate. Um, I think you should, but basically you're, you're teaching people not to be reliant on you. So by autonomy, it simply means that people are, are, are self-driving, uh, independent. So you, you teach them what to do, like they become good at it, and you also teach them how to do it themselves. So yes. I think as a coach, ideally for most clients, your job is basically to teach them not to need you. Uh, of course, mm. in terms of marketing and client retention, that's not ideal, but I think simply in terms of client results, uh, and client satisfaction, it's, it's still definitely going to pay off. Mm-hmm. Uh, because, you know, in the end, most people, some people just always want to coach just for convenience or uh, for whatever reasons. But for most people, I'd say that coaching is always a temporary process. And the goal is basically that they don't need it anymore. So that's, that's the autonomy component. And mm-hmm. then there's relatedness. And that's the most difficult one to put your finger on. Relatedness basically means that you relate to something. You have some connection with it. So I think the best example for relatedness in fitness is CrossFit. CrossFit is, or was <laughs> probably, since they kind of imploded, mm-hmm. um, used to be really good um, at having this new atmosphere of you don't go to a gym, it's a box, and you know you don't go on a diet. There's this paleo lifestyle that you mm. follow, and it's not that you're doing some um, mechanical program. No, there's workouts of the day and it's a social thing. You do it as a group mm. and you all, you know, all the gyms, all the boxes are the same. So you're part of this larger community as well. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's, it's just all very community focused, you know, mm. if there's different words uh, like, like box for gym, but also uh, depending on where you go, other words for um, j- just 
how they call each other. You see this in, in many communities. Like, yes. uh, in fact, like marketing one-on-one is that if you want to build a community, uh, you need to give a name to your followers. They, uh, I can't, I can't think of any because I'm not in any of those communities. But like, call them Zenites or whatever. Yes, yes. So uh, th- those things help, especially in terms of cultivating motivation and creating something that people uh, affiliate with. You know, now. Yeah. For science, that's that's a bit trickier, because you know if you, you try to mo- motivate someone by saying like uh, you're a man of science, Bob, you can do it. Science is in you. It doesn't really have that uh, that you know that, that that relation, that affinity. Mm. So it's evident based and da- being data driven and the like is, is always kind of empty in the motivational mm. side, and that's also why it will never go mainstream. Uh, mm. Better to go with. Atkins and Paleo, whatever, those are always going to be more popular concepts than uh, just data. But you you can find some ways to uh, to attach your client either to fitness or to you as a person. Mm. And of course, the CrossFitters uh, went one step further, and there's a, a certain attire, you know, the black the black shoes, the black mm-hmm. socks up to the you know shins, mid calf black socks, mid- yes, yep. Yeah, vibrant, yeah, potentially, and then uh, just the black shorts and shirts. You know, I've got a uh, there's a CrossFit gym literally opened, uh, CrossFitty gym just up the road from us where we're we're um, in the lab coats recording with you right now, and uh, you can always tell when a few people have come out of there. You know, they're they're very sweaty. You know, talking about how the session was and uh, uh, slightly exactly disheveled, but yeah, yeah. we're we'll wearing black and and the socks pulled up and everything else. So I give them a nod. I say walk past them, but uh, yeah, very very clever CrossFit. How they um, blew that out of the water and it go gained such notoriety. And even even these days, I mean, it's the, there's still there's still a a, a solid movement um, CrossFit. Mm. Mm-hmm. How to kill an empire in one tweet? <laughs> yes. Yeah. What what did he say? Like that was in relation to. Apparently, all of CrossFit was actually owned by one guy. Yeah. And he tweeted. Don't quote me verbatim on this, but uh, he tweeted that the George Floyd situation was like Floyd Floyd 19. Uh, or it's like Floyd 19, he said. Yeah. I'm not even sure what that means, like what the intent of that joke was. But uh, there was kind of universal uh, mm. acceptance that it was in poor taste. And he was... Uh, there were also some things I think he said behind non-publicly, like with uh, other coaches that leaked some of it or something. Mm. There were also... Uh, racist either more explicitly or implicitly so basically uh people are like okay he's a racist so that's especially in 2020 Mm. is uh basically the worst thing you can be in terms of public image yeah so uh that was that yeah you don't want to be calling it the china virus on um on national (laughs) television or anything like that you'll be deemed a racist yeah yeah hilarious Mm. um okay very good so those are those three factors now Menno, did you sort of were they factors that you had an awareness of through your experience and then found the data to support it or were you sort of sifting through data trying to find what are the definite what do we know are, are factors that contribute to, to motivating people so this is actually something i studied uh during my my formal studies in behavioral economics mm. I studied a lot of behavioral psychology and i uh, learned these things uh, actually sort of forgot about them. And then as I read up on coaching literature and diet adherence and those kind of things, basically came back to, it's called self-determination theory. That's how it started. 
uh, came back to these these studies and found that those are of course also very applicable to uh, strength training and fitness. Mm. It was meant to be. It sounds very organic. <laughs> Full yep. circle. Okay, should we go back to a couple of these other points in the uh, list of motivation? Uh, motivation. What do you mean by the missing mm -hmm. data? Yeah, so the uh, that's about how to uh, assess someone's motivation level. And if you want to know sort of how, how motivated a client is, there are a couple of things you can look at, and missing data is, is one of them that uh, I think is is very good. Like as a as an online coach, you need to develop some more subtle senses of motivation than as an in-person PT, you know? If someone's standing mm. next to you and they're just flat out telling you, I don't feel like squatting, mm. then that's that's kind of obvious. But online, it's a lot trickier. And there are a few factors I think that work really well, actually, and missing data is one of them. So clients that have really good adherence, if you look at their program, uh, they will report everything, all of their workouts, mm. all their sets. Every day they weigh in, assuming you you instruct them to weigh themselves daily. Mm. Um, you know, they, if you look at their sheets, it's basically uh, all numbers. Their, their spreadsheet, their program log, uh, is just all continuous numbers. Mm. And if you look at someone's um, data from someone that's not very adherent, often there are lots of gaps. Many days they forget their weigh-ins, and I think weigh-ins are maybe one of the best ones. Actually, there's actually this is one of the few things that I really learned as a coach. To, to be true, and now there's data showing that it is indeed the case. So it's both the, the, the amount of missing data and the variance in the data. So someone's weigh-ins, some people are, you know, there's always some fluctuations and some people freak out over that and you have to tell them, you know, there's difference in the water retention, maybe you went to the bathroom one day, not the other, those kind of things. But some people have a lot more weight variance than others. Their weight may be 65 kilos, next day it's 68 and then 66 and then it's 70. And then 66, well, if it looks like that, then you can be rest assured that their lifestyle is not stable because that's what's causing their weight to be so variable. You know, If you eat yeah. the same stuff every day, you have a very um, constant, more static lifestyle, mm. then your weight's going to be relatively stable. Mm. And if it's really, um, if it fluctuates all over the place, that's generally a good sign, sometimes even better than just asking them, of how stable their lifestyle is. And often an unstable lifestyle means an unstable diet, uh, unstable sleep patterns, which means mm. fluctuations in performance in the gym, uh, means diet adherence is probably also going to fluctuate. Uh, and generally speaking for the long term, they're not creating a constant sustainable lifestyle to follow. Mm. And that's a big red flag. I completely agree. And I do um, the, the phrase I uh, use with the athletes I coach is success leaves clues. The athletes that uh, that I coach that do dot I's cross T's track all the data, they're coincidentally the ones that seem to get the best results. So I do sort of fire that back at them and remind them that these are the little things that when I find that when they do do things dialed in day to day, it's almost it. There's a there's a hard with what they're doing, but it doesn't get any harder. It's like it's a slight mm -hmm. challenge. There there there's there's a slight level of discomfort dieting and, and doing the training and everything, but they can get through it all. It's when they are erratic with their lifestyle and missing meals and and then the hunger pangs and then they train at a different time and then it's you know the worst workout in the world. They mm -hmm. their disorganized um, application to the process which sometimes is out of their hands with with work that they do granted but but what do you i mean how do you tackle that missing data great you remind them that well this is this is important you need to track all these things but what 
what can you do? Uh, or is there like a magic phrase? You mm. mutter three words and then boom, the, the data is all logged. Or is it just simply sometimes addressing it, making them aware that that uh, consistency is what they're after? Yeah, you, that's that's the the root cause that you want to target. So the fact whether you have the data or not is in itself not that's not really the goal. It's about the consistency of their lifestyle. So yeah. I mean, big keywords for success are habits, routines. Basically, you, if your lifestyle runs on autopilot, then success mm. is just a matter of time. And that's that's what you want to go towards. If uh, and that's also a big uh, beef I have with if it fits your macros, interpreted very literally. These people that are like every day you're going to figure out your diet anew because you have a certain you know you have 2,500 calories. Yeah. And these are your fats, protein, carbs, and you can fill it in however. So therefore, every day anew, you're going to fill it in however you want. And I think that's the absolute worst way you can diet. Mm. Because then, funny enough, the idea there is that you're not food focused and you're flexible, but actually you are extremely food focused. Obsessed. Yes. Because every day you're yes. creating a new meal plan. And the best the best meal plan, I think, for, for most people is the one you're not thinking of. The one, what are you eating for lunch? The same thing probably you've had many times before, or what's already in your meal plan or what's already in your fridge. If by lunchtime you have to think, what am I having for lunch? You basically already messed up. Yeah. Mm. Agreed. Well, so, it sounds like uh, those uh, those that go to the gym and, uh, you know, um, use the old muscle confusion technique, uh, shocking the muscle from every angle and uh, surprising the muscle. Uh, maybe they have those flexible diet things as well and, uh, mm -hmm. you know, like to shock the digestive system so it doesn't get used to anything. <laughs> maybe that's some of the motivator there. Confuse the body. Yeah. Mixed signaling. Yeah. That's the key to success. Nutritional confusion. Mm -hmm. Oh, yes. It's just, just nutritional confusion. I think we should do a paper on that. Yes. Rodin? Let's you, do a study. You and I will do well, we've got the lab coats on. Et al. <laughs> Et al. Tell yes. me, Menno, is there anything about, because I know you've spent a fair bit of time looking into genetics, is there anything that would suggest that a person's ability to generate inspiration or, or intrinsic motivation has some sort of genetic foundation? Absolutely. Mm. Uh, in fact, it's. Uh, it's above average uh, in terms of genetic determination. So the, the way researchers usually formulate these things is uh, by inheritability factor, which is roughly just you look at the total variance of something, whether, you know, how often people go to the gym, for example. And that can be um, zero to 100% heritable. And if it's 100% heritable, uh, that's, that's basically impossible. Those are things like whether you have a penis. Well, in 2020, maybe not anymore. But mm. you know, biologically speaking, yeah, biologically speaking, it, it is 100% genetically determined. You're, you're, you basically have one or you don't at birth, and mm. uh, that's what you have to work with. Well, hermaphrodite, they, they, I think they have both, but um, best of both worlds, perhaps. Yeah, even then, you know, you're, you're born with maybe both uh, or not, but whatever mm. you're born with, mm. you're stuck with. Yeah. Uh -huh. So that would be 100% heritability, and 0% heritability would be something that's completely under our own control. Of course, we like to think that most things in life are 0% heritable, uh, but in fact, almost everything in life, uh, surprisingly, is about 50% heritable. But it's, it seems odd, right, that it's, it usually gravitates towards 50, um, mm. but it does happen to pan out that way. Uh, exercise participation is around 60. So it's a bit, mm. there's a bit more, um, more of a genetic factor, and I think that makes sense, you know. Some people like to exercise, some people just really don't. Um, but the nice thing is that 
you don't need a very strong motivation to specifically do strength training or in a specific way. As long as you have some intrinsic desire to exercise, you can cultivate that into strength training or whatever type of exercise you want to do. So you can funnel what you have into different ways and you can be uh, more flexible with your training frequency and those kind of things. Those are not very determined, but you just need to have some motivation. And I think that's not really an issue um, for, for most people that uh, get coaching, unless they've, they've never trained, that would be a red flag. Like if they think they'll start training because they have a coach, mm. uh, you're pro that's probably going to be a difficult client. But anyone that's already training, that shows they, they have that intrinsic motivation, and now they're just looking to improve it, uh, those people you can work with for sure. Interesting hereditary. Because my parents didn't do anything, any exercise, but... Uh... You do see, I mean, Hunter Labrada, Lee Labrada's son. You, you do see many that, uh, you know, Costa Zoo's son boxing. You know, mm. you do see many that follow in the. But you don't that, like exercise. No, hate exercise. You hate training. But uh, I've done it for the last thirty years. Yeah, because you were bullied mm. at school. Yes. I mean, so so you know, is it like so? Rawdon sitting here in front of me, and and he is everything about him from his dislike of exercise, but Ew. his dis decision to do it anyway, his mm. love for staffies, mm. um, the enjoyment on his motorbike, oh, yes, all of yes. these, he is just literally the composite expression of all of his ancestors <laughs> passed down through the however many hundreds of generations <laughs> in the DNA. And, and Mauritian background, yep. yeah. this is the, and we're all just expressions of our genetics on every level. Yep, that's, uh, I think that's a really good way to, to think of yourself. Fascinating. Well, like well, every, everything I am is uh, predetermined. Actually, uh, there are some uh, uh, philosophical uh, trains that's, uh, and physically that, that's probably actually true. Uh, but it's best not to think of your life that way uh, psychologically. Mm. That's fascinating, Tom. I know you're taking the piss there a little bit, but like the old man always had cars. There was always tinkering around with cars and, you know, doing things through it. And it just seems like, like when you don't share the enthusiasm, like, what's wrong with you how come what do you mean you don't want to go look at my bike like what's wrong with you tom you weirdo yet it sort of makes a bit more sense if it's sort of hardwired in there in the background and mm. it just sort of it just yeah like i have a sense of calm and and just zone out when i'm when i'm thinking about that stuff and i can spend all day looking at a bike and duffing around with bits and pieces yeah, and tinkering yeah tinkering it's it's really and i and I often do wonder where it's come from where it's, it's come like from genetics Thank the old man for that one and the uh, desire not to train. I've got to thank him for that as well. <laughs> Thanks, Dad. Very good. <laughs> okay, Menno, what about uh, work capacity? How does that fit into the motivation category? That's uh, another thing you can look at uh, to assess someone's motivation level, and that generally uh, is, is more intuitive, I'd say. Work capacity is, um, in research, usually defined as the fatigue index, which Simply put, if you're using a one weight and you're doing multiple uh, yeah. sets with that, it's the drop in reps across sets. Right. So basically, if you, you're using 10 RM, so your first set's going to be 10 reps if you're training to failure or you don't leave any reps in the tank. And the next set may be uh, eight or five or three. Three would be really bad. That would be 70% fatigue. Five would be 50% fatigue. Eight would be 20% fatigue. So work capacity, fatigue index, they're the same thing, but the other way around, basically. And if someone has really good work capacity, and especially if someone has positive work capacity, so the fatigue index is not negative but positive, that's not supposed to happen. You know, you're only supposed to accumulate fatigue across your sets. 
there is no way you're physically getting stronger by being more fatigued. So if you see someone's reps basically at any point go up, unless you're doing some very advanced post-activation potentiation type program, uh, you can generally say that maybe, yeah, maybe they're not warming up properly, but especially if it's later in the workout, uh, it's most likely a motivation issue. And if someone's reps go like, especially the, the worst basically is if someone's reps go like eight, 10, seven, 11, five, that mm. makes no sense physiologically, you know? So they're just messing about in between those sets. Some of those are effortful. Some of those clearly are not. Yeah. We've discussed this and um, I happily throw um, a lovely uh, individual that I coach who, you know, Tommy Marnie, she's a pro uh, PMBA uh, competitor and last set, always the most reps the set prior i swear to god i'm coaching her bench press you know the arms are sort of going out grinder you know 10 minutes to actually get the concentric phase done Whew, one more set to go boom two reps more last set and usually goes up in weight it's right. like money no no it just doesn't work like that well yeah well i felt stronger in that set but she knows it's the last set is my point so psychologically she knows that's it done and then she gets this second win every time every without time. fail mm. Mm. And this is, you know, yep. you would put her, she's like a world-class advanced. athlete. Yeah. yeah, extremely advanced, but that's just how she rolls. So yeah. I just run with it. Last set, yeah, she's struggling. You got another two in you, boom, gets another two. There you go. Just always add a couple of reps Yeah, on. so with exercise, it's interesting that you can, you can differentiate between sort of someone's intrinsic desire to exercise and the grit required to train hardcore, basically. So... Some people really have that desire, but they don't really have the, the natural grit, basically. Right, you know? So they benefit more from caffeine, from, um, from pep talk. Um, yeah. There's actually research showing that uh, watching porn or violence for your workout also increases uh, performance. And of mm, course, well. that's, not, that's not a physical effect. You know, it's not like uh, if you watch porn, there's, there's certain metabolites going to your biceps. Wow. Unless you're doing something else with it, <laughs> um, uh, you know, there's lots of uh, and, uh, physical. It's, it's going to increase contractile force production capacity. Uh huh. Uh, that's just system. Their motivational effect. Yeah. Well, we. I mean, Tommy and I have been doing that for years. Each podcast, we watch porn before we go to air. <laughs> what about that one today, Tom? That was. Oh, oh, oh yeah. Oof, oof. That was good. Yeah, that's going to really get put us in the mood. Mm-hmm. Mm. <laughs> okay. Mm. <laughs> I'm right. just not going to comment on that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Done. <laughs> The fascinating work capacity. We have actually, uh, you and I have discussed that many times. I find that uh, really interesting. And uh, understanding how muscle physiology works and close to the point of failure, you know, that that uh, realizing that, yeah, it just the muscle doesn't get more and more damaged and perform better and better. Cool. Mm. Procrastination's down there as well. Uh, will we uh, yes. get onto that one? Because that's uh, something that... I've got a, a few a few guys that I coach. Well, one in particular, and he uh, he will fluff and pace around at the gym. It's like, come on, mate, we've got to do this set. And then finally he gets in and mm-hmm. he confesses that he's um, very good at procrastination. Let's talk about this one. Yeah, procrastination is also definitely uh, uh, an indicator of not so great adherence, uh, especially if you already see it at the start of a program. You know, like the especially motivated and even just enthusiastic clients, because that's, that's the difference, you know. Um, they, they correlate somewhat, but you can be enthusiastic without have really having the underlying intrinsic motivation. Uh, but either of them should, when they get to start to work with you, uh, they should be enthusiastic and 
willing to start and they go all in. And I'm generally surprised by how quickly uh, my clients do. I often use a, a couple of test sessions, test workouts. I'm generally surprised by how quickly people get to do them because they have to read all of the materials. You know, they need to have received the information, uh, looked everything over, planned it in, etc. But many of them on that very same day, they just go through all the materials and they get right back in the gym and uh, do the workout. So that's a general indication, you know, that's motivation. Whereas if someone after five days or so is still like, yeah, I'm, I'm working on getting started, uh, probably you're, you're going to have some adherence difficulties. Yeah, I've, I've, I've 100%. I don't know if you can um, offer your side of things on this, Tommy, but for me, I'll get an inquiry on social media and basically the, the speed at which they respond like I always guide them to an email. So like, thanks for the message. Yeah, I'm happy to help. Shoot me an email when you can. I don't place any mm -hmm. urgency on it. It's not like email me straight away. It's like, yeah, when you got the time, shoot me an email and we'll, we'll chat about things from there. And some, boom, like within seconds, the email comes through and then I will reciprocate by being responsive and, and email them back accordingly. But others will be like, it'll be two months. Ah, oh, sorry, finally go through. It's like, okay, cool. So I, you know, might take a day or two to get mm. back to them. I mm. shoot one back and, and then again, another month. Ah, oh, sorry. Yeah. No, it's just got a bit caught up. So definitely proceed with caution. But if you see that and identify it, do you act on it or do you still, well, I'll give them the benefit of the doubt. They're, you know, they're dotting, they're saying they can commit or do you confront that and point out that, well, look, initially you, you don't seem to be in the right headspace um, for what we're going to do together. So do you tackle it or do you just take it on board and then maybe have these other things that you, that you sort of look at once they're up and running? Always do you judge my clients the, uh, the benefit of the doubt. Mm. And because, uh, you know, there are lots of factors that could explain why they're, they're late to email. I, I do think I 100% agree with you that uh, speed of response and responsiveness in general is, is a really good indicator as well of, uh, client adherence, especially online. Yeah. But it can also just mean that they have their notifications on their phone turned on and others off, you know? Yeah. So it could be a lot of practical factors uh, too. So I'd, I'd say you don't want to bring up issues before there actually are issues. Mm. For me, though, uh, because I have quite a waiting list for coaching, it's sort of self-correcting in that people that mm. want to sign up, they they still have to wait, but they, they get on the waiting list and, you know, as soon as the spot's available, they they get that one. Hmm. Whereas other clients, uh, I've had one, I think it was a, a guy that uh, re replied to my email. So it was actually a reply to the email. Five years really? <laughs> after I sent it. Yeah. <laughs> what? He's, and he, he's like, so, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> he actually said something extremely euphemistic about it. Something like, um, Sorry for the late response. I wonder if you're still available. <laughs> Five years. That's... Uh, so yeah, I was not. And the prices had changed and everything. And the services were different. But uh, so I basically classic. just uh, restarted the conversation. I don't think he signed up. No. It's it, it's interesting, and like you said, um, you really do have to give them benefit of the doubt. I had a, an athlete that I ended up coaching who went on to do well nationally, and um, 
you know, he he was really one of my success stories, I guess, as a as a coach and uh, coach and working with an athlete, and it was great to eventually work with him. But it was probably, I think, a good eighteen months before he actually started. Initially, came in and 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 we we had a coffee. Yet this is what's involved. Oh, okay, I, I can't commit to this and that at the moment. Went away, no problem. Six months later, another little uh, SOS. Hey, you know, I'm I'm just organising from my end. I'm I'm going to sign up soon. Yeah, no worries. You know what's involved. Let me know. Another eight months later, but it ended up being like a good 12 to 18 months before he actually, uh, and then he ended up being a, a, a great athlete, super, super adherent and uh, did very, very well. So yeah, you, you can't really, you know, oh no, I'm sorry, you, you're not the right mm. uh, athlete for me. I'm, I can't coach you. I think another interesting thing is kind of what you were alluding to, Menno, with how you get them started, like the onboarding process with the client. And obviously there's probably a bit more detail they have to go through with an online onboarding. I know, yeah. Rawdon, yours is pretty, the initial email that they get yeah. out and all that kind of stuff. There's yep. a bit of stuff to wade through. So these mm-hmm. days I try and, the the actual program overview, I try and get to a page and then I'll, I'll do an audio recording yep. overview and I try and keep that less than five minutes. Nice. And it's just interesting to see how many people actually get through that process you know how some people can't it's very hard for them at certain phases of their life to open an email and actually read the whole email yeah do you know what i mean it just seems like attention spans are so short these days but if you get someone who's actually you know in the first session you see them they mention something that was in the plan it's always a good sign that they've actually gone through and read it or yes or i might like plan a couple of little Yep, seeds curly ones. Curly ones or say something that they would probably refer to. So I get an idea if they have that actually listened to this audio. Yeah. Uh, interesting. I made this one comment about no alcohol and I can't remember, like, I don't care if you have a drink on the weekend, you're prep. Uh, I don't, but in the, because it's an old, older email when mm. I was super, thou shall not do this and yes. that. He referenced that. It's just this one little comment and this huge behemoth of an email. So yeah, clearly he went through it with a fine tooth comb. And, mm. and about the alcohol thing, is it, does that mean I, I can't touch it at all or can we can we talk about that yeah. it's like oh, yeah did i say that and then i would look back and read it it's like yeah. oh yeah there is a reference there alcohol geez i'm tough funny so there must be a, a bit of a, a fine line you know like a balance between how much you get them to do in the onboarding process yeah. and how much is actually doable so you don't overwhelm them definitely um and i think you should scale it to the price and the availability of your service so if you have relatively high prices, you can do a more uh, extensive onboarding process Yeah. because it basically weeds out the people that aren't really motivated anyway. Yeah. And if you, you're doing like group classes, very cheap, uh, you just want a lot of people to sign up, then you should probably make it really simple Yeah. and make sure that maybe just with a few clicks, they can get started. Yeah, yeah that, that makes sense. sense. Yeah, mm-hmm. absolutely. All right. What else we got, Tommy? You heard an echo there. Yes, yes. Yes, 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 yes. <laughs> it's not um, from our end. end, end, end. <laughs> so with all of these factors, and there's a few more there that we haven't covered, to what extent can you actually motivate the client? Yeah, so, I mean, technically it's the 40%, basically. But I think in practice, it's, it's a very big effect. And just the, I mean, there's also research showing that people with a trainer, even if it's a bad trainer, they, they do much better than on their own. Mm. Just uh, there's also actually research. Just being watched and supervised alone already provides some effect, and then of course the guidance and the motivation and everything uh, generally adds on to that. Um, but fun enough, for example, in uh, relevant for 2020, uh, people wash their hands more frequently 
when there's a, a picture of someone watching them or just even eyes on the uh, in the bathroom on the wall somewhere. Mm. So just, you know, the, the idea of being supervised or being watched uh, alone already has an effect. So I think, uh, you know, as a coach, you, you have yeah. a lot of um, positive power, some of it inherent, just from buy-in and everything, but also in terms of the Pygmalion effect and the power of motivating your client and how you frame everything, those things actually have very big effects. And I think you, the more established you become as a coach, the more effects you have because, you know, people know you. Basically, I don't think there's anyone that has signed up for my coaching over the last years that has not known me for months and often years. Mm. Almost everyone that does my PT course or my coaching says, um, I've, I've been following you since, you know, maybe I Googled something and your article came up. Then I start reading that. Then I followed you on social media. Then I started uh, watching your um, interviews or listening to your podcasts. And then I signed up. And then, you know, they know you, you have authority in their, mm. in their eyes, and you have a lot more power over them than just you know, some random guy. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I often find that as well. Like if it's just, um, just a random got your name from somewhere but know nothing about what you do it's it's quite a hard i find it a quite laborsome yeah, process yeah. to explain what you do and they're like oh you, you do all that like well, why do you do that it's like well well i, I, I just do okay that, that, that that's what i do and uh so it's almost better if um and most do i agree most are sort of you know vaguely aware that i've that been around for a little bit listen to the podcast these types of things yeah, interesting that um, that's the case with you. I would, yeah, I would assume with you it'd be mm. the same. So you're saying that from the perspective of the research that we've got as a coach, forty percent to work with with the client that we could, if we were to do the best job that we can do, we influence them to forty percent. So then sixty percent of the journey is up to them. Yeah, well, sixty percent is um, is genetic even, mm -hmm. but of course the, the total journey includes everything from them being in the gym in the first place. No, so I think that's more the take-home message. Like you need to have people that have some intrinsic motivation to exercise, yeah, and those you can work with, and then you can shape that motivation into a certain form that's most effective. Uh, but it is the reality that if someone just hates exercising and thinks that because they're hiring you, uh, they're now going into the gym you know, next week, then uh, that then you've got a tough client. Yeah, and tell me just to move on uh, before we move on from motivation like our role as a coach there's a certain level of motivation that we need to bring to the table we do that we you know there's a few things that you mentioned we went through awesome uh, points today to go through but if we still perceive they're just not motivated or they've lost their motivation maybe their priorities are elsewhere they're talking about missing their their social lives or you know going out with friends and all that type of stuff do we take it upon ourselves to uh, keep working on it trying to motivate them or do we line in the sand it's like okay for you right now let's just hang up the squat shoes let's take the uh, the posing trunks off let's pause things um how far do you take it upon yourself to motivate i think it's it's good generally to have the mindset also long term and also for your reputation to never give up on a client um but there are definitely cases um especially for me because i'm well above average in my fees I'll say like, you know, I personally, uh, I wouldn't hire me uh, if you're not going to invest in it because it's quite an expense and then not to use it is, you know, not very economical. Mm -hmm. So I think 
you can say things like that, but you don't want to give up on them. Like if you just flat out say like, yeah, I don't think you can do it. Not only is that um, just not a mindset you want from any coach, uh, it's, it's, it's also potentially uh, very damaging to them you know, in terms of the Pygmalion effect. Like if you, if the co even your coach says you cannot do it, how on earth are you ever going to uh, muster up your motivation? Uh, obviously, if there are like mental health problems and the like, then things may differ. Like I've referred some clients to a psychiatrist and just told them like, you have anorexia, like 100% anorexia and you don't need a coach. You, you should get a psychologist or ideally a psychiatrist with pharmaceutical intervention. Mm. Interesting because that does, um, and I agree with you and, and I'm on board with that, but there's also, you know, some that will say, you know, if, if you're PTing and the client is just uh, sapping your energy and they're just the neg negative energy themselves, you know, it, uh, and I'm pretty sure we've all had over the years clients that are just, you don't click with for whatever reason. And it's, you know, it's like you roll your eyes. Oh, I've got session with so-and-so now that oh, once a week or once a month, it's like, oh, it's that time of the month again. I've got so-and-so. Like get rid of it. Get, get rid of it. It's draining. If it's draining your energy, get rid of it. Yeah. After. Yeah. Like is is that something or is it um, our role? It's a bit like a doctor, you know. Well, we are doctors, Tom. Let's be honest. No, um, just... And professors and mm -hmm. uh, et al. Mm -hmm. Hewitt et al. Dubois et al. Yes. You know, are we are we sort of thinking like that? Where well, we're PT. You know, I I took the oath when I did Cert three four at the AAF, and <laughs> uh, you know, I, thou shall you know see this process through and try and help everyone. Hmm. Uh, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I do think, I mean, in the end, you have to, uh, you're human. Yeah. And th those things are a reality. And if you think that one person is just um, making your life more miserable to the extent that it's negatively impacting your job for all the others, yeah, uh, it's just the lesser evil is to just uh, part ways with that client. Mm. Um, ideally, um, I think you would try to not let it get to you or... Um, basically detach from that client if, if mm. they, for some reason, really still want to continue. Um, I think, you know, you need to have a conversation. You need to uh, either ask them what it is exactly that they want or if they're happy with the coaching. I think communication is generally uh, the way to go in that scenario. But, yeah, there are scenarios probably where it may be best to uh, to part ways just because it's, it's, it's too much. Even if theoretically you don't want to give mm. up on them, et cetera, uh, yeah. There are definitely exceptions. You now, you mentioned that you, um, you know, you'd sent people off to, to see a psychologist and get some pharmaceutical intervention. Pharmaceuticals. I was thinking the other day, and just reminded me of it. Like, so many people get prescribed something like Ritalin or stimulants and things like that to help with psychological disorders. But like, if you had someone who was really struggling with an exercise program, and you said, okay, for the first month, we're going to get you on some Ritalin, and it's going to lower your appetite, and it's going mm. to increase your energy and like your, where you're your going motivation with, with training, and blah, 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 blah. Mm -hmm. Like, are there any anything in the world of pharmaceuticals that have been shown to enhance intrinsic motivation or compliance with training programs, that kind of stuff, outside of PEDs? Um, not to my knowledge. Intrinsic motivation is very hard to cultivate, but... Uh, it does correlate strongly with overall subjective well-being, basically happiness. Happy people are typically more motivated to do stuff, mm. and unhappy people don't want to do stuff. And in fact, the basic, one of the hallmarks of depression is that you wake up and you think, why would I even get out of bed? 
Mm. You know, you say you have no motivation. Yeah. So anything that cultivates happiness uh, can uh, stimulate intrinsic motivation. Uh, so in that sense, I think a pretty good case could be made for heroin. Uh, <laughs> no, <just kidding. laughs> yeah. Well, only the first time though. You only get that one I rush. Think I think ice yeah, is. I don't think heroin motivates you to do much other than sit on the couch. Well, apparently ice is really, really good until it's really, really bad. Mm. Yeah. Famous last words. <laughs> yeah, it's a slippery slope uh, for our listeners. Do not go there. Mm. Okay, right. Well, that's about. I'm motivated. Yeah, yeah, I'm pumped. I'm. I think I might actually. No, no, I'm not going to train. No. To the gym for once. Yeah, I don't think so. It was close, man. Not right, bad. Not right. a bad effort. So well, that's about an hour. I know, Menno, It's almost your bedtime or beyond it. So in sort of wrapping things up, you've got a point here about goal setting, performance goals versus growth mindset goals. You might just quickly unpack that one and then we can send you on your way. All right, sure. So I think uh, with goal setting, goal setting is one of the more misunderstood topics, uh, I think, in, in fitness where a lot of people have the idea that setting goals is inherently motivating. And typically the type of goals they set is what in psychological science is often called a performance goal, such as a 300-pound bench press, 10% body fat, uh, yeah. 10 kilograms weight loss, those kind of things. And there's actually a lot of research showing that these things don't really motivate you. Uh, and in fact, sometimes they can backfire, especially if you have unrealistic weight loss goals, because you're going to be um, uh, losing much less weight than you anticipated. And it may actually be a good thing, good thing, because it may mean muscle retention. But if you are so set on those, you know, losing 10 kilograms, then it can be very uh, demotivating that you're not getting that. Mm. So actually for purely in terms of the, the data, it's it, there's more of a trend for demotivation than motivation. I think what you want, uh, as opposed to those kind of performance goals, which are pretty empty, you know, they just, they don't, they're just an expression of a desire. They don't tell you anything about how to go about achieving those goals. And I think the mindset mm. that you want is what's called a growth mindset. And that's more focused on actually where you're going. It's not the end goal because perfection is always going to be a moving target. And if you, you know, you look like the guy for 300, then you want to look like the bigger guy. And so it goes on, you know, mm. uh, there's nobody that's one, once they bench press 300 pounds, they're like, okay, that's it. You know, mm. uh, now it's maintenance for me. I'm not going to do much uh, anymore because this was it. I've always set out to bench press 300. I did it. And now I'm done. <laughs> so it doesn't work like that. What you want is you want to know what you're doing. Stronger, leaner, bigger, faster. Those are good goals to move in a certain direction. And your, your daily goals can also be um, useful. So actually daily actionable goals. Sometimes called uh, uh, action triggers or implementation intentions. Like saying, when I wake up, I'm going to weigh myself. And afterwards, I'm going to eat uh, a bowl of quark with oatmeal and then I go to the gym. So, you know, a concrete plan. They're, they're more like, they're more things you put in your agenda, actual plans, things you do and specific concrete actions. Those are good kind of goals because those are actionable. They tell you what to do. And a growth mindset is just, you want to know what direction you go into and you want to know what you have to do to move in that direction and then the final goal where you end up or however long it's going to take you, those things are not really relevant. You know, you can have some form of benchmarking and if you were going to do a show, 
then of course, you know, you need to concern yourself somewhat with that. But especially for non-competitors, you know, what is the goal? The goal is generally bigger, leaner, stronger. And yeah. if you're moving in the right direction, that's what really matters. Because again, if you're, if you're, um, if your lifestyle runs on autopilot and you've got those things covered, you're moving in the right direction, then success is just a matter of time. And really for most people, if you can get to, um, if you achieve your goals in one month or three months in the long term, you know, over the course of your life, that's not really very important. Mm. What matters for most people is you're moving in the right direction, you know what you want, and you're doing it on a sustainable path. Yes, because then you can enjoy the journey. It's not just about getting exactly. somewhere. Yeah. The, the, the joy is in the journey. And it's, it's like it's, it's like the happiness pot the, thing. Pot of gold at the end of the rainbow. Mm. And do you think that growth mindset really influences that uh, enjoyment of the journey more so, or makes it more accessible for everyone? If it's it's more that rather than specific, got to get ten percent, got to bench press three hundred. If it's that you know, bigger, stronger, faster, leaner, that type of thing, they can actually enjoy the process. There's less success or failure hinged on key points, I guess. Mm. Yeah, definitely. So you're 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 happy that you hit your PR or your you scheduled your bench press for you know 170 times eight instead of times seven like last time, you know. And then every time yeah. you hit those kind of small goals, it's a little bit of happiness. Yeah. And you'll find that once you hit that 300 pound bench press, you feel basically just like once you hit that 295 pound bench press. Mm. And uh, all that matters is now maybe you feel a little bit more empty if you really focus on it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And that's, uh, that's how, uh, what we should be focusing on, feeling empty. empty. Tom. Yes, that's mm. very Dubois method-like. Very mm. in-depth fuel. Yes, yes, mm. yes. I had a Swedish client once. And Swedish? She told me about quark. I was not aware of it. But um, if you look at the macros, it's a very it's, – it's like a cheese, like a Swedish cheese, I think. Oh. Isn't it, Menno? It's like a cheese. But the macros are pretty good. Say, it's quite, quite high in yeah, protein. It's, it's basically Greek yogurt. Right. So you have quark, skier, Greek yogurt. They're they're pretty much the same. Mm. And then you have Hüttenkäse, like cottage cheese. Uh, that's cottage more cheese, the, more yeah. cheesy, more uh, crumbly. Yeah. But uh, in terms of macros, it's also very similar. It's a bit more keto friendly. Yeah. Right. Okay. Quark. Quark. <laughs> I was thinking of corn. You know the uh, Q U. I think it's like a a vegan. And meat, the vegan stuff, yeah. The corn. I thought, right. Oh, yeah, that's that's good. Go yeah. vegan there, man. No problem. What the, about that the, one? Really caloric protein powder. <laughs> yeah, exactly. All right. Well, I think that's. Uh, I'm pretty motivated. Like I said, will we uh, let um, Menno go now? We're going to milk yeah. him, milk him a little more. Maybe Menno, if you. Um, I mean, you don't know yet because you haven't finished the book and you're not sure where it's going to be. But um, is there anything you'd like to say about the book? Uh, not yet. I mean, okay. if you're on my email list, then uh, you'll you'll get a notification mm -hmm. uh, when it's up. I probably uh, the first uh, coming two months, you're only going to hear about my PT course, and then uh, yeah. I'm going to refocus on the book. Sounds like a touch of the uh, Lyle McDonald's, mate. It might be years before this uh, this this book comes out. Potentially, but uh, I'm not going to do a Martin Burkham. That's for sure. It's it's uh, well, he did actually get it uh, done in the end, and then he. You yeah, absolutely. For like a year, saying uh, other people have beaten into it and whatever. But uh, yeah, I gather it's not an easy read, but it's pretty comprehensive. Very um, Lyle style. Martin's book. Uh, uh, you know the the women's. I'm talking about the the uh, oh, training Lyle's women's. Book, yeah, yeah. yeah, Lyle's book. It was. We actually 
back in the day interviewed him and uh, mm-hmm. sadly due to our connections with uh, others in the industry and where we worked we couldn't let it uh, go to air so we're, we're sworn enemies uh, to the end of time now unfortunately with uh, ourselves and Lyle he never forgets it sadly much. Uh, it was, no. it was, it was, I tell you what the funniest thing was when Rawdon sort of extended the olive oh, yes. branch and wrote a very you know heartfelt and factual email about uh-huh. the, what had gone on and mm-hmm. you know we were, were apologised profusely <laughs> and the response he got from Lyle yeah, was, profanities it was, it was yeah, so funny piss, piss on great. me if I was on fire last person on earth or something like that yeah yeah, he uh, went straight for the jugular, that's for sure. <laughs> uh, anyway. All right, Menno, thank you so much for your time again. We really appreciate it. Absolutely. My pleasure. Worth Thanks, your waiting mate. gold. We'll talk to you again soon, mate. All right, see you. Thanks, Menno. Bye. Well, Rodden, he always over-delivers, mm. Menno. Um, so, and that, that would be quite a contrast for the listener. We under-deliver <laughs> and he over-delivers. The yin and the yang of the Under the Bar podcast. Yes. I think our guests provide mm. some intrinsic motivation for us. I yep. think without the guests, we'd really struggle. Yes. <laughs> wouldn't do anything. <laughs> I, I would be the, uh, uh, why are we getting out of bed day? Yeah, That's exactly. what it would be every day. Exactly. Groundhog day. Endep day. Endep day. Exactly. Um, Mate, I like the – it's funny, you know, I'm sure we've all, as individuals and working with our clients, had set goals, specific yes. body fat goals, scale weight goals. That could backfire. Yeah, and, you know, on the surface, perhaps a growth mindset goal could be a little too vague for people. Mm. So it's like a vision. It's like a vision, a general vision for where you want to be going. That's the direction you want to be moving. But when you have those uh, action triggers mm. littered throughout the day, that's where the... A touch of the uh, grateful logs, uh, mm. just a smattering of uh, a smearing, a butter zone of uh, grateful logs there. Yes. You know, the, the, the daily goal setting. I thought that was um, something that was easy to relate to. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I know those little things. Yeah. I mean, it does feel very good when you've got a list of things and you actually start yeah. ticking them off. And particularly good if you have a whiteboard. Yes. Write them on the whiteboard. Different color marker. Yes, yeah, absolutely. Line through it. Done. Mm. Yeah. Well, that's part of the process. So I think mm. that was fascinating, mate. I, I I was thinking of you during that interview when he was talking about the uh, the missing data mm. and, ref- and to the data reflecting on some of the conversations oh. uh, that we. <laughs> Cussing. <laughs> so and so's come on board. Oh. Steps are always late. Yep. Never gets the scale weight in on time. And, and then the next minute the next is minute doomed yeah. for a yeah. disaster. Yeah, but that was uh, definitely a. He, he felt that there was a, a correlation there. And uh, the weight variance, another one that he threw our way, which, uh, you know, I, I do agree with. Uh, but then I have seen others that I know. <laughs> I mean, I say I know, but I don't know. I'm not. I don't have the uh, what the drones flying around uh, all day watching what they're doing. But I have also. But it's more that the skyward will be sort of down, down, up, then down, 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 up, up, down, down, down. So it's it's sort of like consistently erratic. Yeah. But it's trending yes. downward. Right. So that's I think a little bit of a difference, but. Yeah, interesting, you know, seeing those numbers go up and down. But I think he was not suggesting that they weren't necessarily following the plan. It was just that their plans were a schmozzle. Erratically all, followed. Yeah, all yeah. over the place, which, again, is not really going to set up uh, them up for success. And like he said, you know, the best uh, meal is one that you ate yesterday. Well, probably not the same meal. You don't want to regurgitate and eat it again. But, mm. you know, without actually thinking about, mm. oh, what am I going to eat for lunch? And uh, he really uh, put the... Um, the uh, the boot into the if it fits your macros where he did which makes perfect sense you mm. know on a daily basis you know wake up in the morning 
okay, what do I feel like? I think I feel like uh, you know some junk food today, and boom, eat it all within meal one, and then mm. you're uh, fast for the rest of the 23 hours. Exactly. But then the point that he made about those people actually focus more on the food because mm. you find yourself wandering around, picking up everything, yep. and looking scanning. at scanning the, the panel. Okay, yeah, so my so fitness panel. Let's scan it. Boom. What does it say? 100 grams of that is going to give me this much protein in that. So the protein's good, ah, but a little bit too much fat in that. I can't have that one. All mm. right. Uh, mm. Next bar. What have we mm. got here? It's interesting. I did. Uh, I did. I was going to help uh, an individual came and saw me, but he liked that. Was sort of his diet wasn't particularly bad, but it just had so many moving parts. It was like one protein ball, and then I have you know gluten free, but but a little bit of uh, peanut butter, one one slice only, mm. and then I have you know some yogurt with with some berries and a few almonds, and then you know, and it was just like a mishmash of a little bit of everything. It's like my God, how, like how do you? Well, like, what do you change? Do you take out a bit of food or you know, you, you lose that uh, finesse, you know, mm. taking out, adjusting a, a macro slightly? Because everything had a mix of protein and fat and carb. Like, everything. Right. It was just yeah. like, my God, how on earth do you... Uh... And he, he was uh, stagnant. Like, he hadn't sort of... It wasn't that bad and calories probably ticked the box calorie-wise, but it was like, where do I go from here? It was mm. just so much harder to play around and keep protein, for example, where it needed to be to yes. maintain a certain level of muscle mass of simply because it was just a, a mess of, of macronutrients. I think everything had equal protein, carb, fat, so it was just a, a, a nightmare. I'm exaggerating slightly, but it, but that sort of is in more line with a flexible, which is completely doable. Everyone mm. acknowledges that, but I think you definitely need to have your wits about you far more than what you would have Otherwise, eating, you know, not following that style of nutrition. And yeah, maybe bringing a little more work upon yourself. But I guess for some, that's that's what they like doing. And, and I, I think it's also not necessarily saying that you, oh, you've got an eating disorder because you like to look at labels and whatnot. No. If, that, if you're down with that and you're... And you like spending time, and like we discussed, I I get off on on other things, and it's hereditary. Yes, maybe you know, for those it came down from mum and dad, the fact they like to look at nutrition labels and uh, you know eat flexibly every day. Who knows? Hereditary, forty percent, sixty percent, sixty percent, one hundred percent of sixty percent. Not fifty cent. Not fifty cent. <laughs> All right, mate. Well, I think we've uh, we've absolutely pretty much done our duster in terms of um, quality stuff. Yeah. So we'll. Head down to the lab and you can show Absolutely. me what, what, what we've been working on. Mm -hmm. mm. Yeah, always just a little stiff walking down these Hold stairs. the rail. Yeah. Slippery. Mm. What a moss. Look, he gave you plenty of stuff to think about today, mate. There's, uh, you know, he, there's... He, he motivated me, in fact. Mm, mm, mm. Let's get the door open here. Okay. All right, mate. So okay, where okay, are we come going? Here, come here, check this out. All right. Okay. So uh, one of the things you mentioned actually was Ritalin. See this uh, jar yes. of Ritalin here? I've managed to grind those into a paste. Excellent. I put it in the beaker here, and this is Cialis. Oh, so I've ground this one up, put it, and I'm making a bit of a brew where nice. Basically, you take this pre-workout, watch a little torn. Mm. As science says, it's going to be very, very uh, motivating. And then down the hatch like this. Yes. Oh yeah. 